1976, director Sidney Lumet and star Al Pacino gave the world a brazen drama recounting a bafflingly inept bank robbery. In 2021, we get ritualistically cleansed in the waters of Buffalo Trace. <laughs> the film is Dog Day Afternoon. The whiskey is Buffalo Trace Kosher Wheat Recipe. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1975 film Dog Day Afternoon. He wants to kill me so bad he can taste it. I got always going to kill you. Attica! 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 Brad, we are right in the middle of a 1970s marathon here. There were quite a few movies that had just randomly been assigned to this season that were in the 70s. So we threw them all into a little mini series. And I have been really entertained hearing your takes on 1970s film because a lot of filmmakers consider the 70s to be kind of the turning point for American cinema. Like the late 60s into the 70s was when you saw these filmmakers really rise up through the ranks and have the most kind of creative control ever in uh, the history of American cinema. And at the same time, Brad, if we're being honest here, you just don't really seem to be a big fan of 1970s cinema. Bob, honestly, the 70s and like you said, the late 60s are really hit or miss for me. I feel like certain films from that, you know, era, like just knock it out of the park and are wonderful. But there's a lot of them that I just really struggle. It feels like a lot of the directors were just desperate to try and be realistic. And sometimes it works. But a lot of times for me, I, mm. I, I really struggle with it. And I think I struggle with it because it usually has like a few really great performances at the top paired with some hideously bad like secondary background character performances, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, we were kind of talking about this a few weeks ago, and I can't even remember like what movie we were talking about. But, um, you know, at a certain point, the new wave of actors came into Hollywood and they were all these method actors that went through the actor's studio in New York. And they were being put up against people that were from an older era of, you know, more hammy acting. And I think the 70s is where you really started to see that contrast be like really highlighted. You know, you, you have somebody like Al Pacino in this movie or John Cazale and you put him up against some, some older, more uh, almost like TV type actors in this movie. And you do kind of see the contrast. I, I think this movie does pretty well in downplaying that contrast. I think this one does stay pretty realistic and pretty gritty, but that's definitely something you see in 1970s movies a lot. I agree with you there. See, Bob, I'm not going to lie to you. John Cazale is kind of one of the people I'm going to point out today of just a, a strange and unconvincing performance. Interesting. Yeah, the characters, the characters weirdly written, but we'll get into talking about him. Brad, you know, we've already kind of jumped into to like our analysis of the 1970s. 
But we need to kind of pull back here and talk about the movie of the day, which is Dog Day Afternoon. This is a movie that was incredibly popular in the 1970s, both with audiences and critics. It has held up over the years. It's still really well regarded, especially as one of Al Pacino's best performances of all time. We've done director Sidney Lumet films on the podcast before. I'm interested to talk about him, but I get the sense, Brad, that this was your first time watching this movie. Is that the case? It totally was. All right. Well, that means that it's time for us to just dive headfirst into Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time, and that is the case today. Brad, as you know, we have a 60-second limit on Brad Explains this season, so can you give the people what they want and explain the plot of this movie in one minute or less? Three guys go into a bank. One of them gets some spooky vibes and leaves. The other two rob it. They set things on fire. They take money. And then the cops show up and they, you know, should have just let them walk out, but they didn't. And so now there's hostages and and Sonny, one of the bank robbers, is going outside and he's yelling at the crowds and the cops. And the the cops are kind of inept and they're doing stupid stuff. And uh, Sonny goes back inside and he comes back outside and he goes inside and he comes back outside and he goes inside and he comes back outside and, and he does that a lot. <laughs> so just, just know that he like fiddles with this key a lot to unlock the door. It happens a ton, but by the end of the film, the FBI has taken over. Um, he, you know, throughout the day, Sonny has gotten one guy who has asthma out of there. He had a doctor come in to help the bank manager, um, it turns out that he's actually gay and is illegally, legally, I don't know, married to another man who wants to be a woman. Time. And yeah. I feel like you just started to get into the meat of the of the plot and I had to cut you off here. Yeah, well, that's kind of how I felt when I was watching the movie. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. I, Brad, I think we're going to have an interesting conversation today because I definitely fall into the camp of thinking this is a fantastic movie. I think the direction is incredibly tight and well-paced. I think the editing is great in this movie. Um, just like with 12 Angry Men, when we watched that movie, a Sidney Lumet film, you get similar kind of claustrophobic vibes in this movie. I think the camera setups are all super well done. This movie just works for me, and I'm starting to get the sense that it did not work for you. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of my uh, Brad Explains kind of give away how I feel about the movie, right? Th this movie, if I really wanted to make you angry, Bob, I would just keep telling you that it's fine. <laughs> but if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not sure if it's even that. Oh, like, come on, man. Dude, I'm just being honest with you, dude. Th this movie struggles in a lot of different areas. I think the biggest struggle for the movie is the acting. Um, I, I think some of the cin cinematography is really good. I think that the way the crowds get whipped up into it can be pretty good, even though it's really confusing throughout most of the film. Um, you know, I, I think some of the main actors are really good. I really liked Al Pacino. I like Charles Durning as Moretti, the sergeant that talks to him. You know, and th there's a few good moments here and there, but I literally can't stand a single person who worked at the bank other than the manager Mulvaney. Like he's fine and good. Everybody else just kind of sucks. I, there, you are coming in a, hot here. There's right, a lot I, of stuff about this movie that I struggle with, man. I have I have a couple of responses. The first one is that it's hard to take you seriously when you both begin and end a sentence with dude, which you just did a minute ago. Dude. <laughs> You're like, dude, I have problems with this movie, dude. Secondly, I guess 
let me let me kind of ease us into what sounds like it's going to be a contentious episode by asking this. When you were talking about 1970s movies earlier, I think the thing that sometimes uh, turns me off from late 60s, early 70s film is that there was they were doing so much experimentation at the time. And they were really playing with things like genre and form and like, you know, the way movies are cut together, the way movies flow. And I think sometimes it results in a movie that even 50 years later seems really fresh. And wow, I can't believe that this only came out, you know, 10 years after To Kill a Mockingbird or something. And then other times it was experimental, but it makes the movie seem really, really dated, like all of the psychedelic stuff in Willy Wonka that we talked about. Where are you falling on this movie in terms of does it play like a a very modern movie or does it seem dated to you? Honestly, you know, the movie it kind of reminds me of a little bit and and partially because of the setting, obviously, is uh, do the right thing. Mm hmm. Okay. You know, it kind of has. I mean, obviously, it has that feel of like it's a hot day. And like bad things are happening. And and so it has that going on, but it's got that New York vibe. There's very sensitive subject matter of the movie. I think the difference between this and Do the Right Thing is that Do the Right Thing from the very get-go set itself up as this is just a day in the life. This is just kind of showcasing what's going on in this you know neighborhood of New York City. Whereas this film sets itself up as a bank robbery and it sets itself up as this, you know, kind of thriller of a movie and then you just have these really long boring takes where you have actors just engaging with one of the weirdest scripts i've ever seen i feel like where it just feels like okay now this happens and and now his mom's here and now his wife is here but oh wait his wife isn't his wife it's 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 a man And it just kind of feels like nothing is ever explained to you in a good fashion. Hmm. And I'm I'm all about like directors showing, not telling, but I don't even feel like he even showed anything. Interesting. And I think I think the biggest example of that is Sal, his his partner in crime, right? You literally never once find out a single thing about Sal other than that he's dumb. And he cares about not smoking. And I guess he's a Christian, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. Yeah. I, I like what was his point of even being in the movie? Yeah. I mean, a single line. See, here's the thing is like, I feel like a lot of the things you're saying are valid criticisms. And it's just one of those things where either it works for you or it doesn't. And because I, I don't have an explanation for like what was Sal's purpose other than to just be like the guy that's there with Sonny. I will say, Brad, that I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of having a really weird script. And I think that, again, I might end up sounding like a broken record today, but this is one of those movies where the decisions they make either work for you or they don't because they're definitely making capital C choices in this movie. And I think that when you compare this to do the right thing, it really is an apt kind of comparison because do the right thing. If you remember for like three quarters of its runtime really bounces around between like meandering goings on in the neighborhood and then like scenes that are designed to get a laugh, like really funny scenes and then really serious scenes. And then all of a sudden it just kind of clicks into place and it becomes a, an out and out serious harrowing drama. And I think this movie is pretty similar in that way. Watching it back again, what I was really struck by was just how funny, especially like the first half of the movie was. There's just a lot of things in that first, I'd say 30 minutes, especially 
that are designed to get a laugh out of you. The way that everything falls apart immediately in the bank robbery and the guy, the one guy gets, you know, uh, kind of skittish and runs off and Al Pacino's just like playing it with perfect comedic timing. You know, I was even thinking about there's this one moment where um, the, uh, they're trying to interview Sonny Al Pacino on the news. And as he's talking to them, you find out that the news people have a camera across the street and they're filming him through the window talking to the anchor. And the people in the background of the bank, like, the, you know, the bank tellers who are the hostages are like in the back waving to the camera, like looking at themselves on TV, obsessed with the fact oh, I'm famous now. And then all of a sudden, Al Pacino says something like, don't you realize, man, these cops, they want to kill us. They want to kill us all. All of our brains are going to be splattered all over the sidewalk. And if you watch really closely, the woman in the background just kind of puts her hand down and just like slinks back out of frame. It, it had me rolling. Like there were moments in this movie that I literally laughed out loud. And I think that either that balance that they try to achieve of comedy and really serious drama works for you or it doesn't. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. You know what I mean? There's no coming back. So that if there's anybody now that you want to talk to, you want to say goodbye to, do it now. No. No. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No, Wyoming. That's not a country. That's all right. I, I'm going to take care of it. I think there were moments throughout the film where I like chuckled at it and it was funny. And even just at the very start when Pacino pulls out his gun and he can't get the gift wrapping right. off of the gun, right? Like little things like that. I, I thought that the little physical gags in the movie, things like that were, you know, were comedic and funny. But even like the the story, the plot line that you just pointed out of like, you know, these cops are here to kill us all. They're they're just going to shoot us. And later he jumps out and he's talking about Attica where, you know, there's a police shooting. They killed a bunch of people. Where does that go? Like, like that doesn't really go anywhere. It just kind of hits in the middle of the movie. And they're like, yeah, police are bad. And then they never talk about it again. They never bring it up again. And I just I'm like, well, why did you why did you even put that in the script? So I, that's a really good that's a good question. And the Attica scene has a lot of folklore behind it because that's like the famous quote that came out of the movie. And if you want to read more about it, you can watching it this time, Brad, I actually had the same reaction as you, which was why are we trying to fold in this idea of like uh, Sonny becoming a folk hero? Why are all the people in the street cheering him? And I think that at least for me, I came to a conclusion that I, I was satisfied with. Because if you pay attention, by the end of the movie, when all of Sonny's kind of dirty laundry is being aired for everybody, you, you find out that even though he has a wife and kids, like he is also gay and he is secretly married to this man. And especially in the 1970s, you know, public opinion of men being married to men was not at an all time high. And by the end of the movie, when they're all trying to get out of the bank and, and go to the airport because Sonny has this getaway planned, the crowd is like throwing things at him and jeering him. And I think what it is trying to highlight isn't so much what you're actually seeing, which is just, oh, people are fickle and now they hate him. I think it's meant to to kind of play up Sonny's isolation, Sonny's loneliness throughout the movie. He really comes to realize I've got nobody in my corner. I have I have made a grave mistake. I am all by myself in this. And you really start to see the side of him that he, he has felt like an outcast his whole life. 
And when he went outside and got the crowd pumped up and they were all on his side, you can tell that was the only moments in the movie, really, where Sonny felt a sense of happiness and pride. Like, okay, people are behind me that I'm doing this. People are on my side. And then when they found out his true motivations, they turned on him again. And I think it really, for me at least, it really drove home this idea that this guy messed up. He messed up at a big level and he is all alone in having to sort out the consequences of that. So, I mean, for me, that was that was what I saw that as. But again, I, I understand where you're coming from, which is like, do you really need it in the movie? Well, Bob, honestly, I'm kind of curious. Uh, I I personally feel like Pacino gave a really good performance. I didn't necessarily see him as a sympathetic character. But, uh, you know, how did you respond to him and what he did in this film? See, I definitely do see him as a sympathetic character. I Well, OK, let me say this. This movie works because it kind of reminds me of Coen Brothers characters where the whole movie is about really dumb people getting in over their heads in terms of committing a crime. And the movie doesn't have like the vibe of a Coen Brothers movie, but I think it's very clear from the beginning that Sonny did not plan this well, that he is in cahoots with idiots and that he is uh, slowly realizing that there is no way out of this situation. And I think because of that, he he becomes a sympathetic character because you understand that he really he never intended to hurt anybody. He's clearly not going to hurt these hostages, even though he is an incredibly flawed person, uh, obviously a terrible husband and father and obviously committing crimes to try to get what he wants out of this sense of desperation. So, like, yes, he's a very flawed person. I do think that they're able to create some level of sympathy out of that. I guess for me, it was just hard to have any sympathy for the guy when every single person who is in his life that talks about him talks about him like, yeah, he's always been a terrible person. Sure. Like, sure. Like he's crazy. And so, like, when you see the mother and the father who are disparaging him and his female wife <laughs> is talking about how he's gone nuts and his male wife is talking about him, how he forced him to suicide. It's hard for me to feel bad for the guy when it's like, dude, you've pushed everybody in your life away from you. Like you talked about how lonely he is. I guess I've most often in my life experienced that a lot of lonely people out there have pushed a lot of people away. Oh, from for that. sure. Yeah. And so it's just it's hard for me to go. Yeah, I feel bad for this guy who's just kind of a jerk and crazy and forced people to try and commit suicide mm. and and is guilting his wife into like like she's ta like, dude, she's talking about like. Like, well, I, you know, I, I know you have this thing and I, I tried to, you know, do things for you that would would help you. Yeah. And I like I just don't feel bad for the guy. He's a to everybody. I, hey man, I, I get that. I'm not <laughs> saying that he's not either. And so, like, I guess what I want to say, though, is the important thing for me is that and, and one of the things I appreciate about movies from the 1970s is that they they presented unvarnished characters without commentary and they left it up to the audience to figure out is this person worthy of your sympathy or not one of the things that i don't like in cinema today is that they really broadcast to the audience this is how you're supposed to feel about this person and we ran into this with uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest talking about jack nicholson's character of mick murphy and is he worthy of sympathy because when you find out what he did to get into you know the the nut house you don't know if you really want to feel sympathetic for him anymore. And I appreciate that they don't like insult our intelligence. Whether or not you end up on that person's side is another story. And for me, the important thing here is that I think Pacino gives 
in my opinion, maybe the best performance of his whole career. And I only say that because we just watched The Godfather for this podcast. I actually watched The Godfather 2 right after that because I was like, I'm going to watch The Godfather. Come on. And then as soon as Godfather 2 was over, I popped Dog Day Afternoon in. And to see the stark difference between where Pacino is playing Michael Corleone at the end of Godfather 2, where he is completely silent, completely stoic, a shell of a man. And then watching the kind of like manic, nervous, sweaty energy that he brings here. And this is still before he like hits the 1980s and becomes like a cartoon version of himself. Like he's still bringing the goods here. And I what I love about Pacino here, Brad, is that the character seems like an honest portrayal of what that man would actually be like. It doesn't seem to tip into like, you know, overacting at any point for me. It feels real and for me, it works at least. Well, and I'm glad you said, you know, that it might be how he actually was, because I will say that, you know, after watching this film and looking up some more info on it, realizing that this was a movie very closely based on the real account of two bank robbers that tried to rob a bank so that the one guy's uh, lover could have sex reassignment surgery. Like, oh, like this is just kind of a wildly strange situation and i will say it did redeem the movie a little bit in my opinion (laughs) (laughs) i man listen i'll take what i could get at this point so brad i think maybe i think maybe this is a good place for us to just hit pause you know we've talked about pacino which is the major performance here we've kind of you know quibbled with some of the smaller roles in this movie i think when we come back from break i do want to talk about Sidney lumet and some of the things he's doing as a director but for now, what do you say we break and we try this Buffalo Trace kosher wheat recipe? Uh, before we get there, Bob, I do just want to point out that Sheldon, the FBI agent. Yes. He 100% looks like George W. in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> like like the first time he like stepped up to talk to Pacino and the camera had a slightly upward angled close up shot of his face. I just accepted expected him to be like. Well, we have intel that there are nuclear weapons in this here bank. <laughs> Strategery. <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. All right, Brad, let's drink oh, this whiskey. man. Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Buffalo Trace Kosher Wheat Recipe. This is a bourbon. This is not a wheat whiskey. So it kind of falls in line with some of Buffalo Trace's other weeded bourbons, meaning that, you know, after corn, wheat is the primary ingredient that's used in the mash bill here. So think something like a Weller Special Reserve. We're talking that kind of a mash bill. But Buffalo Trace tried something different that had really never been done before by a major distillery. 
This whiskey was aged in kosher barrels that were specifically designated that way under the supervision of the Chicago Rabbinical Council so that they could satisfy Passover requirements. And I'm actually reading this this information from the website of one of our Instagram friends, Whiskey Consensus. So thank you to them for doing so much background on this. They say that after aging for seven years, this wheat recipe bourbon is bottled at 94 proof. After ensuring that the bottling lines were cleaned beforehand to ensure that no contact was made with non-kosher spirits. This is a completely kosher product. It came out last year, 2020. It retailed for $39.99. But Brad, as you know, that is not the case with Buffalo Trace. This stuff flew off shelves. It was, I think, a lottery pick in Ohio. I was never even able to see it on the shelves. We were lucky enough to get a sample from our friend Tyler at TK Bourbon on Instagram. Brad, you and I have had a very checkered history with Buffalo Trace in general. I'm going into this with a healthy sense of skepticism. Pretty much how uh, I feel about any movie that you pick out for us to watch. <laughs> but yeah, Bob, I'm right there with you. Uh, this was a lottery pick? I don't remember if I mean, it was I, a lottery I'm... pick or not, but like, if it wasn't, it went so fast that I never even saw it on Man, shelves. You know I... what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I do. I, I just do not understand the obsession with Buffalo Trace. Like from their basic, you know, Buffalo Trace product that you can get anywhere. I don't get why that is even sold. Like I mean, it's fine. Yeah. It's just okay. But people seem to love it to the very tippy top. Like, yes, I get the BTAC is really, really tasty and delicious. And Pappy. Sure. Yeah, well, I haven't had Pappy, so I, well, I can't. I can't comment on that yet. But honestly, it, it I just Buffalo Trace is a enigma wrapped in a mystery for me. <laughs> well, Brad, <laughs> as we try to unwrap that mystery slash enigma, what are you picking up on the nose of this kosher wheat recipe? Honestly, Bob, it's hitting a lot hotter. I, I would have guessed that this would be more like uh, like a one oh seven. Hmm. Um, it, it's 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 really alcohol forward. There's a little bit of a floral note here and there. It's oaky. Um, and I feel like I got a hint of like kind of like a peach almost. Um, but honestly, like I feel like I'm almost giving it too much credit. I'll give it a six out of 10 on the nose. Uh, it's not blowing me away. The alcohol is really hitting hard. Yeah, I definitely agree with you that it's alcohol forward. But for some reason, uh, it, it's hitting this kind of sweet spot where it's alcohol forward, but it isn't super harsh for me on the nose. Like it's actually bringing out a lot of floral notes for me. And I really like it. This has a really, really nice. Again, like the only thing I can really say about it is almost a rosewater kind of uh, scent to it. I like it a lot. I get some of that oak that you're talking about. I don't get a lot of like bourbony notes. I don't get any caramel or vanilla on this at all. It just has that really pleasant floral note to it. I'm going to give it a seven out of 10 on the nose, but I will say I have no idea where this is going on the taste based on this. Well, I, I've been giving it a sip while you were while you were talking about the nose. Honestly, Bob, it drinks a little bit watery for me. There's hints of oak and vanilla, but I I'm not getting a ton of flavor here. I think the most I could say is that it has a little bit of fruitiness to it, but but overall, I'm I'm gonna give it a five out of ten on the taste. Oh, I don't like this at all. Ugh. Um, <laughs> oh man. Uh, so like as soon as it touched my tongue, I could tell it was gonna be a very oak heavy uh, bourbon, and then the the farther it went back on my palate, it. It first soured and then it went completely bitter. It is, I don't even know how to describe it, Brad. It is like 
maybe the most bitter bourbon I've ever had on this show. And it's bitter and then it's like a almost smoky, but not in a kind of peaty or even campfirey way. It's like ash. It is just bitter and ash to me. And I am not at all enjoying the taste on this. Oh, gosh, I, I want to be generous and give it like a three, but I don't even think I could do that. I'm going to give it a two and a half on the taste. Big old oof. Yeah. For the kosher line. <laughs> yeah. And I, honestly, when I get to the finish, it's a little bit spicy. And like you said, I can't tell if it's spicy or just like bitter. Like, And that's like not a good place to be in. Uh, honestly, this whiskey keeps getting worse as it goes. I'm going to give it a four out of 10 on the finish. So second sip was much, much better than the first sip. Um, but the thing is, and I've been telling you this lately, Brad, I have like a baseline bourbon that when we sit down to record an episode, I take a little cap full of it to acclimate my palate to drinking bourbon. So for me right now, that's Heaven Hill Green Label. And I had a little cap full of that before we started. So I know that it's not just that my palate's in a weird spot. This was way off of what I'm used to in the sort of flavor wheelhouse of bourbon. And even though the second sip was a lot better, it still has that overly oaky, bitter flavor going on to it. The finish, I didn't even really notice, to be honest. At 94 proof, like it's not super harsh. There's a little bit of a Kentucky hug, a little bit of a warming sensation going down. I will say that the finish doesn't leave those horrible flavors in your mouth for very long. So if you appreciate a short finish on the palate, uh, this might be up your alley. I think I'm looking up at this positively because the taste was so bad, but I'm still only going to give this a five and a half on the finish. And that brings us to our balance score. And I'm just going to give Bob's favorite note that I that I sometimes give. It's fine. Five <laughs> out of ten. Yeah, I don't think this is well balanced <laughs> at all. Uh, the nose was really pleasant and the flavor was nothing like the nose. And the finish was, to use Brad's word, fine. So if you balance, you know, if you average it all out. It was a very fine experience, but the problem is it went from being good to horrible to medium or like mediocre. Uh, I'm only going to give this a four and a half on balance. I, I was going to say it's it's not fine. It's just fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not fine at all. <laughs> all right, Brad, that brings us to value. Again, like I said, in the state of Ohio, this was valued at $39.99. Uh, I don't think this is worth that at all. Uh, once again, Buffalo Trace is, is kind of pissing me off here. I don't understand the hype behind. I think it's a really cool idea. And I will say I don't I don't see this as a gimmick. I see this as, you know, a viable thing that they're doing for a group of people that normally cannot indulge in whiskey at all. And I think that that is really cool. The concept is awesome. The product is not. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you, Bob. The concept is amazing. I, I think it's really neat that they would even think to do this. But in the end, it's not a great product. And $40. Bob, I get that they probably had to pay somebody to clean all those machines that drove the price of this whiskey up a little bit, but it ain't worth $40, brother. Uh, I'm going to give it a three out of 10 on value. Yeah. So this is my dilemma, Brad. I don't think that $40 is a bad price point for a completely kosher whiskey, because just like you said, like you have to pay people to clean all these machines. It's really labor intensive. So the concept of a $40 completely kosher whiskey I think is actually a pretty good value. But when you're talking about this specific whiskey being worth $40, I think that's a terrible value. So I'm kind of torn between 
how do I properly reflect the value here? This is like the only one of its kind on the market. And so if you want to drink it and you're and you need to be kosher, like this is what you're being offered here. But I think the product is really, really bad. So I'm only going to give it. I'll go four and a half again. I'll go a four and a half on the value. And that is taking me out to a 24 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you to? That's bringing me out to a 23 out of 50, Bob. All right. So that is pretty easy to average out. We're coming out to an average of a 23.5 out of 50 or just a 47 out of 100. This, Brad, is this the first one we've had that's under the halfway point this season? Uh, honestly, maybe in like two seasons. Wow. It's been a really long time. I mean, even in the springtime of Swill, I don't know if we really had anything like this far down. We might have had a few, but that's Swill we're talking about. So I will say that Buffalo Trace, I believe Brad produced, it was either three or four kinds of kosher whiskey. So this wheat recipe is not the only one. And maybe there, one of the other varieties out there is a much, much better and easier sipper than this one is. I just, I can't recommend this to try or to buy. Yeah. Zero recommendations from Brad G here. <laughs> Man, it's it's shaping up to be just a hell of a letdown for you overall today. The, the movie, this is just the whiskey. A, yeah. I'm just done, man. You can finish the episode on your own. All right, Brad. Well, on that note, I guess I will get back into talking about (laughs) Dog Day Afternoon. So, Bob, let's get to it. Have fun, man. That was Buffalo Trace Kosher Wheat Recipe. Brad had vowed to just leave this episode, and I had to coax him back with the promise of money and donuts. So he's he's back now. Brad, well, ha- and, you promi- and you promised me that I got to give out an award. Oh, that's true. That's true. All right, Brad. We ha- It's been a few weeks since we've done the Brad G Awards, and you know we are very much post-Oscar season now, so the only awards being given out are the Brad G Awards. What award would you give to Dog Day Afternoon? Bob, if there was one thing that kept me motivated to keep watching this movie, it was the fact that I had never seen what I will be giving the award for the world's largest forehead ever seen in a (laughs) film for John Cazale. Oh. All right. So here's what I'll say. I have a, a real soft spot for John Cazale. Because he only made five movies. He was a very, very famous uh, kind of theater actor in New York. Uh, he was very heavily involved with Meryl Streep. They were a, an item for a long time. He was great friends with De Niro and Pacino. They all kind of came up together. Um, and he was kind of the unheralded one of the group. He was the character actor. He's the guy that plays Fredo in The Godfather. And he holds his own. He's a great actor. He only made five movies and he died of cancer right after he made The Deer Hunter in 1979. And so it really kind of watching this back and hearing him give that speech about getting cancer and he doesn't want to get it in his body. It made me really sad because 
I think he was only like 42 when he died. He was he was very young. And I really wish that we had gotten to see more performances from him. You know, it kind of reminds me of people like, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like the great actors that even though we had more movies from Hoffman, you wish you could see him really come into their own and become the person that it feels like they were destined to be. And they, you know, got cut short. And Bob, I am just so thankful for the downer that you put on my comedic moments in the episode. Listen, man, if you're gonna, you can't, you can't give the guy that died of cancer the biggest forehead award. I just, I got to give you a little bit of crap about. I didn't on, know that man. he died of cancer, man. All, all I know is he's got the biggest. Of course you didn't, because you didn't do any research before you came into hey, this episode. I actually did more research for this movie than I have done in a very long time, because I was interested in so, the actual real life story. Of what happened. So how many minutes on, on Wikipedia did you spend then? Uh, probably like 25, 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought so. All right. <laughs> well, it didn't talk your... about Kazale dying, but it did talk about uh, how big, how his, big forehead his forehead was. was. Yeah. I'm so sure. there you go. <laughs> I was it's wondering Wikipedia, why that, man. I was wondering why that section was there on Wikipedia. Now I know that you I wrote totally it. didn't add that in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's talk a little bit about Sidney Lumet, the director. This is only the second Lumet film that we are doing on this podcast, Brad. And I'm going to have to really jog your memory to go all the way back to season one. And I think like our third or fourth episode, which was 12 Angry Men. That was really Lumet's big break. He was, you know, adapting that from a television movie. We talked a lot in that episode, Brad, about how they never had the same camera set up twice in that movie. They filmed it from, I think, like 300 plus different angles in that one room. And I think this movie, it's definitely a little bit more cinematic. Like there's obviously there's helicopter shots and there's, you know, lots of dollies where you push in on Al Pacino's face. But I really did feel like you had a great sense of the geography of that bank by the time the movie was over. You knew the back room. You knew where the manager sat. I really loved the way that Lumet choreographed everything and and laid out the geography of that space really well. I don't know, Brad. Did you did anything stand out to you about the way Lumet directed the movie? I feel like in a lot of movies, directors really struggle to give the viewers a sense of like location. And mm-hmm. and not like location of like the, you know, the background scenery. I mean, like whenever the camera is in a specific spot, like it can often become confusing about where you are, like, and you don't have that in this movie. Like every single shot, you know exactly where the hostages are. Like he, he goes so far as to show you like the way to the back door. So you know what's going on back there. You know, you know, the full layout of the bank. And that's partially because it's such a simple set. And mm-hmm. then even on, on the other end of things, you see the barbershop, you see them setting it up. So I, I think in a lot of ways, what Lumet does best with his cinematography is that you always know exactly where you are in every moment of this film. Yeah. No, I totally agree. One of the things that I love that he does in this movie as well is how he uses the editing. Like, I think this is a really well-paced movie. I know you thought that there were parts of it that were pretty boring, but I love the contrast between the scenes that move quickly and the scenes that move slowly. And I think that Lumet really knows when to just put the camera stationary and let Pacino just be Pacino. And for me, the scene that that really hit home was one of the last scenes in the movie where he's kind of dictating his will. And I'd say the first half of that is just one shot of him 
uh, you know, kind of like a wider shot dictating. And then it cuts to a close up of him with the the it's a really shallow like depth of field. The Everything behind him is out of focus. And then it just stays on that shot for a while. And I really, really loved that he knows when to let the actors command your attention and when he needs to move things along with the editing. And I think to me, that's a sign of a really mature director that he's not always trying to wow you with what he's doing. He knows like this is Pacino's time to give a monologue and I'm just going to sit here and let him do it. Yeah. And if there was anything impressive about this movie for me, it was those few moments where Lumet let the camera just sit with Pacino and just let Al be Al. Like the dude gave a really spectacular performance. I, I think it was kind of bagged down by a lot of other people, but when Lumet was willing to just say, Hey, like the movie's coming to a close, it's night outside, you know, all the lights in the bank are off. And, and it gives this mood of, of almost like closure. Like, mm. like, at this point, Pacino has talked to the FBI. He knows that Sal is going to die. He knows that he's going to get arrested and or maybe die. And I, I think that's where this movie has a little bit of a punch that is really lacking in the rest of it. Hmm. Did you find that whole last sequence to be suspenseful at all? Did you think that the tension worked for you there? Um. Mm, uh, <laughs> I'm really, no. really not sure. The word you're looking for is no. <laughs> like the the part where they're shuffling out and they had like a camera shot kind of up where, you know, one of the riflemen is. At that moment, I'm kind of like, all right, like, is this going to be a shootout? Is it going to be Attica? Are they all going to die? Yeah. yeah. And, and so that moment, I was kind of like, all right, let's 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 see what happens here. But once they get in and they start going, you're just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, they, they're not going to shoot all the hostages. Honestly, that was probably what I was looking for. I was like, mm. I am only feeling tense here because I feel like the hostages might get shot by the police. But then they didn't. And it made me question even more why they talked about Attica in the middle parts <laughs> of the movie. It sounds like, Brad, you have a very good sense of what kind of score you want to give this movie. So I think maybe it is time for us to move into final scores. I will say up front, I'll let you go first, but I'm going to say up front, Brad, I love this movie. Don't be surprised when I give it a way higher score than you think it deserves. <laughs> do you remember a while ago when you were talking about comedy in the movie mm -hmm. like at the very start of the episode yeah i was trying to think of a funny moment to put it to like be like oh yeah you know i found this one moment funny but i couldn't think of it till now one of the funniest moments of the movie for me was when uh pacino walks outside and sees his mother and i literally had the thought uh, you know if you've watched everybody loves raymond this will make sense but I was like, if Ray Barone robbed a bank, this is the conversation he would have with his mother. <laughs> and that was my only thought. You know what? And, and honestly, Raymond's brother would be perfect in the John Cazale role, too. So <laughs> yes, yeah, he totally that's, would. That's a man. great Brad Garrett character. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, is Sal Pacino's brother in this movie? No, he's not, but I oh. just they're they're both equally dim-witted and I think it would be a perfect. No, they they are equally dim-witted. I just thought cuz I couldn't figure out who the heck Sal was the whole time and I was like, "Wait, did I miss something? Was he his brother?" <laughs> <laughs> All right, good to know. Moving on. Yeah. Honestly, Bob, I like I don't want to come down too hard on this movie. I didn't enjoy it a ton. I recognize that there is a lot of really good stuff going on here. Honestly, I'm in a similar place as Goodfellas. I just feel like 
there's a lot of people who really love this movie, but the difference is I've never heard a single soul talk about Dog Day Afternoon until I saw it here on our podcast list. So for me, I don't feel like this is as universally beloved as a movie like Goodfellas. And so I, I'm i coming down at a 7 out of 10. Oh, all right. I thought you were going to give it like a 4. I'm fine with that. Oh, no, dude. Like, th- there was moments that were fine. And, and I, I, I genuinely right. liked Pacino's performance. So here's what I'm going to have to ha- have you help me with, Brad. I think this is a nearly perfect movie. And the struggle that I'm having is that you very clearly did not think that. And I don't know if I should let myself be swayed by you and give it a nine and a half or be honest with myself and give this movie a 10 out of 10, because I really, truly, honestly think it's that good. I will say, though, Bob, a lot of my critiques on the movie, you were like, yep. So it's not like I'm sitting here yeah. like some movies I don't no, no, like. No, no. And I'm just like, Bob, I just don't like this movie. I it's think dumb. Th- you brought the <laughs> most valid criticisms that you've ever brought today. I will say that. Like, But I also will say that from the get-go, I've said, I think this is one of those movies that either works for you or doesn't work for you. And if it works, it works perfectly. Like, I think the comedy is pitch perfect. I think the pacing is pitch perfect. I felt the suspense at the end of the movie. I think it's Pacino's best performance of all time. I think this movie, Brad, is a 10 out of 10. And I'm not I'm not going to back down from it. But I will acknowledge that it's either going to be a 10 out of 10 for you or... It's just not going to work. You know, I thought this would be a much more contentious episode than it is, but I think maybe finally, Brad, we understand one another. <laughs> it's, not, it's not quite an all about Eve <laughs> debacle. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, if you've seen Dog Day Afternoon, we want to know what you think. So please get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Honestly, Bob, sometimes when you say like, but we want to see, you know, what you think about this movie. Half the time I'm like, Bob, I would give you $100 if five of our audience members have have actually watched Dog Day Afternoon. Do you know what's really funny about that, that you say that, is that we had multiple people comment on the apartment and say, like, I'm so happy you're do- like, I love this movie. And I honestly didn't think anybody would have known it at all. I, I'm right there with you, man. Yeah. I had never heard of the apartment until, you know, just like Dog Day, until I saw it on the list for this season. Yeah. <laughs> But if you want to call in and tell me how wrong I am and just be like, Brad, you're an idiot, like obviously thousands, millions of people have seen this movie, then give us a call. You can leave a voicemail on our website, which is anchor.fm slash film whiskey. Next week, we are going back to back with Sidney Lumet movies. We're talking about the 1976 black comedy satire classic Network. Another movie that I guarantee you Brad had never heard of until he saw it on the list for the podcast. When you say black comedy, can can you just like specify the word black, what it means? <laughs> um, it, it's a very, very dark comedy. And like, I don't even think that it necessarily okay. is like trying all the time to be a comedy, but it is absurd and it's a satire. People get killed and it's okay if you laugh at it. Do you know what I'm saying? All right, I'm in. <laughs> hey, Brad, I think we should implement a new game, uh, which which is just, do I think you'll like this movie? Because I've been so surprised at which ones you have and have not liked this season. <laughs> I'm going to go, huh. I'm worried that I'm going to sway you, but I want you to disregard what I'm saying and go into it with a really open mind, okay? All right. 
If you didn't like Dog Day, I'm going to go ahead and say you're going to like Network even less. But I am open to being very wrong. I, as you should be. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We will see you next week for Network for the Film and Whiskey podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.